week, uh, we looked at doubt. And we said that doubt, anybody ready to shift gears? Go shift gears, ready? We did this and we're shifted, right? We said the last week that doubt is not sin. The week before that, we had this, we, uh, Timothy had a great message on the nature of faith and what faith looks like in our life. Faith is our goal. We want to, Jesus said, without faith it's impossible to please me. So we want to be a people of, of faith who trust and believe God, who he is and what he does. We said, in the season of life that we live in, situations arise, don't they? Quite where questions are birthed, where tension happens. We find ourselves in these moments, if we're completely honest, of, of doubt in the season. Just struggling in the moment, wrestling with questions for God and, and questions. We said last week that, that those moments of doubt in and of itself are not sin. We said that, that doubt is simply that suspension between two opposites. One being faith and one being unbelief. Faith is that belief and trust that something is true. Unbelief is faith and belief. Or belief and, and trust that something is not true. And so that place in between is that like, oh, God. But we said that that place of doubt, that place of doubt is a very serious condition of the heart. Because in that moment of doubt, it either leads us back to faith, which is what we long for and pray for, where God comes and meets us in the moment as we are faithful to ask him his help, or it leads us to, to unbelief. And we said that was the story in Luke chapter 7 of, uh, of John. That John had seen Jesus, had watched the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus like a dove, right? He has this moment saying, this is the Messiah. He says, I am not worthy to, to do anything with your sandals. I shouldn't tie them. I shouldn't want, I didn't do anything, right? I shouldn't even be baptizing you. And then it says in Luke 7, he says he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one to come or should we expect somebody else? He's in this moment of struggle, this moment of questioning, this moment of, of doubt. He was the greatest man born of woman, according to Jesus. But here he is in a moment of tension. And so he says, why doubt is not sin. Now, yes, it can lead into that if we live a lifestyle of doubt and continue, leads us into a level of unbelief. But, but in that moment of tension, in the moment of struggle, that that this is this honest place that we find ourselves in. So the spectrum we can find ourselves in is a, a place of faith, a place of doubt, or this morning realizing that we can live in a place of unbelief. So we're going to look at that this morning in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 31 of your Bibles. You can turn there. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. You can look on the screen also if you want. But coming into this place of doubt leading to unbelief, this place of unbelief, it says this. Now, Jesus in verse 30, let me just, if you have your Bible, you can look up. It just says, and, that, and those in, in the tax collectors and the Pharisees did not believe, right? So they had a doubt, just a quick doubt that led to a quick unbelief in the ministry of John and the ministry of Jesus. And then Jesus says, all right, in verse 31, to so what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? Hmm. Well, they are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, Hey, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you, you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified 
by all of her children. So let's get the picture here, this nature of unbelief. So Jesus is speaking about this generation. He's speaking about this generation of unbelief. Those who can't receive the ministry of John. They they cannot receive the, the words and the ministry of Jesus. And he comes in in verse 32 and says, They are all like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another. So the picture I want you to have is like, so imagine being at Publix, and on one end you got you got we've got some children over here, and they're and they're over here, and they're and they're and the end of their children over here, and they're kind of yelling back and forth, and they're playing a game. And so Jesus here is speaking about this playing of a game. They're they're literally in the marketplace playing a game, and the, and there are rules to the game. It's like every when you're a kid, remember how every game had rules, and so like you're playing baseball in the front yard, and the car turns the corner, what happens? Game off. Here goes the car. You sit there and you wait, you wait, you wait, wait, they go by. And then you go, all right, game on, right? Because you had rules to all these games that you played. And so here, the, they had these rules, these, these rules they had to play by. In our game, when we, see here, when we play the flute for you, right, nice flute right there, and we play that, you're going to dance. That's how we play the game. That's the rule. And when we sing the dirge, I don't know what that is, right? But it's like, there's a dirge. We sing the dirge. What do you do? You weep and you mourn. And Jesus is saying, we, John and I, did not play by the rules of their game. And he is being derogatory and calling them children. He says, you guys are childish in that you see life as a game, right? And you have these rules. We did not play by them. So what did you do? You slandered us. You said, hey, John, well, John's from the desert. He doesn't do the stuff that we do, so he has a demon. He's demon-possessed. Stay away from him, right? Stay away. And Jesus, well, he came eating and drinking alcohol, so we're going to call him a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners, basically, basically saying, you are a drunk and the worst of all sinners. Guilty by association. And so you have this, he said, this is what this generation is like. They look and they play this game. They have these rules. We did not play by their rules, so they do not accept us and they live in this place of unbelief. Then he comes on and says, said, yeah, wisdom, is, wisdom is justified by her children. Basically saying, time will be the tell. Wisdom in time will be proven to be wisdom. In time you'll see that this is true. And so what we find in this, in this situation, is very simple. Doubt, this is going to be on the screen, doubt, many times, is just a smokescreen for a heart that wants to play by its own rules. This was taken by from a guy named Oz Guinness. He says, doubt many times is just a smokescreen for a heart that wants to play by its own rules. So we find ourselves in this moment and in life, and we have our own rules to, to our life. Like we see life and we don't, we wouldn't call it a game, but we have rules that we live by, things that, that people need to do. We have these rules and, and, and ways that we expect God to move or people to move in our life. And so the question we have to ask is this. And we're continually asking, in my moment of doubt, my moment of tension, my moment of unmet expectations, and the struggle that goes on that leads me from a place of, of active faith to this active doubting like John the Baptist, we ask the question, In this moment, am I playing by God's rules or expecting him to play by mine? Am I playing by God's rules or expecting him to play by mine? 
In the story, the people who, are, who play by their own rules are continually offended or let down because Jesus and John did not respond and do what they thought they should do. Listen, according to their own convictions and their own theology. Listen, John and the Pharisees had very distinct theology on who the Messiah would be and what he would do. And Jesus and John did not play by that theology. So John's in prison saying, the, Jesus says he's a Messiah, but he's not releasing the captive from prison like he said he would do in Luke 4. And I'm in prison and I'm righteous because of my prophetic statement to, to Herod Antipas over here, Herod the Tetrarch. And I'm still in prison. He's the Messiah. should be letting me go. Two, I don't see any political aspirations for him because the Messiah is supposed to have aspirations to, to politically to take over and destroy Roman rule. I don't see any of this happening and there's this tension. This is his religion that John is dealing with. His, his spiritual convictions, his reading and knowledge of Scripture and his own religion is being challenged by this. Listen, I was 19 years old. I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church. I was told that all the gifts of the Holy Spirit had died. A boy by the name of Shane Barber lays his hands on my head, and I began praying in tongues for over an hour. What do I do with that? I mean, I go to, I go to, listen, I went to start praying to tell God how much I loved Him, and I went, but I started speaking in tongues. I was going after Jesus. I was convicted by the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, but I was told this, this is not true. I was told this died with the apostles. Am I filled with a demon? Because that's what they say people are who were speaking in tongues. And what do I do with that? Do you see what I'm getting? Listen, I'm simply telling you my story. I went back to my room that night, opened up to Galatians 5, and fell in love with the Bible and prayer like I never had before ever. I literally the next day ran home to my dorm room to open the Bible back up and just be with Jesus. Something happened here, and it changed everything from that point forward in my relationship with Jesus. And I'm left in the moment going, well, I guess I can't go back to my Southern Baptist church because I'm filled with a demon. Do you see what I'm getting at? I'm not knocking it. I'm not not. That's my that's my story. So what do I do in that? Because my religion is challenged in the moment. And what do I do with that? Do I embrace that I've fallen more in love with Jesus than I ever have in my entire life? So in this moment, in our story, in these tension moments, we have to recognize Jesus does not play by our rules. Jesus does not play by our rules. And that seems tame and innocuous when I say it, but let me say it a different way. Jesus, therefore, is not afraid to offend or to disappoint us. Jesus is not afraid to offend or disappoint us. Think about it, John the Baptist. Do you think that Jesus knew he would be offended and disappointed in the moment? Because Jesus did not respond the way that John 
felt like he should and ended up, John ended up dying, being, being, being beheaded there in prison. Jesus, in his knowledge, Jesus in his omnipotence of knowing all things. Do you not think that he knew John's theology? He'd grown up with John. He had heard John's preaching. He knew what he thought about the Messiah, what he would do, and Jesus wasn't doing. And he knew, because he knows, that John would have this moment of disappointment and a level, probably a level of offense in the moment. But the second point we have to, to process and we have to let sink in is that Jesus never offends vindictively. Like, let's look at Kelly and go, oh my gosh, I cannot wait to offend Kelly this morning. This is going to be awesome. I'm going to totally disappoint him. I'm going to like nail it to him, right? Jesus doesn't do it vindictively. He doesn't look at you and say, oh, I can't wait to offend. No, you've got to recognize Jesus plays by his, by his own rules. He names here, this generation is like a bunch of children who play by their own rules, but I am God who plays by my own rules of bringing salvation and redemption, and that trumps everything. And therefore, in my movement, if it offends, because I'm not playing by your rules, or it disappoints because your rules are not met, and even the moment if it's a struggle for you, ultimately, ultimately in this, I am moving for the purpose of salvation and redemption. Jesus never offends vindictively. You know, it's one of those things, I'll, you know, you read the, read the news all the time and you see these people who um, they just want, to, they want money, right? And so they do whatever they can to have a lawsuit. Because you can just have lawsuits against anything. So I was reading this article one day about this lady who had a lawsuit against this guy because he had broken one of her ribs, Right? And I thought, oh, yeah, let me read this. What's going on? What happened here? Right? Woman sues because man breaks her rib. So I was like, what's that all about? She was dead and he was administering CPR. Right? She literally is dead in the moment. She's not breathing. Her heart has stopped. And in doing the compression, right, chest compression like this, a rib gets broken in trying to bring her life. And she doesn't like that. So she is suing him, right? She's suing him in her just complete blindedness because he saved her life. And I look so often, right, in the knowledge of, of God and knowledge of what he's doing and the movement of God and this idea that he, he comes and he moves and he moves by his own rules, right? He has his, his own rules for the quote-unquote the game of life. And, and when we find ourselves getting offended because... Well, because he did not respond and act the way that we thought. So we find ourselves in these moments of doubt, right? Because it's a smokescreen for a heart that wants to play by its own rules. What I would say this morning is that conquering doubt requires a knowledge of God's character. Conquering doubt, it requires a knowledge of God's character. What do you mean by that, Steve? Well, think about it. Think about the person right now who has the highest character of anyone that you know. Like, if I were to say to you, who's the person who's most Christ-like, most loving, most kind, person that you know best, and you think of someone, right? And this, and all of a sudden, so I then say, hey, I want to take you, I want to take you to a coffee this morning. I want to talk to you about this person. 
I go, okay. And I sit down and begin telling you all these terrible and horrible things they have said about you. Would you believe me? Well, hopefully you would not because you would have known them so well. You look back at me and say, we're not talking about the same person. I've known them for 40 years of my life. I know that they love me. I know all they've ever shown is compassion and caring and kindness. And I don't know what you're trying to do in slandering their name, but we are not talking about the same person. What is wrong with you as a matter of fact? Because when you have a knowledge of a person's character in an intimate, life-giving way, right? Not that you don't, you don't just know about them, but you fully know them. Not people you visited with, the people you habitate with and have an ongoing knowledge of them. And all of a sudden, right, you know their character. And in knowing their character and who they are, right, then it conquers doubt that anything that they do would be vindictive against you or ultimately trying to hurt you. We see this in Psalm 42. I'm going to read the entire chapter to you. Psalm 42, you can turn there if you want to just read on the screen. You've heard this before. It says this, Psalm 42, as a deer... Pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. You, most of you have never seen a deer pants. So remember that big dog you saw that one time? They've been going on a long walk, and you walk them into the house, and they see their water bowl, and they just take off after it, and they hit it so hard, all the water goes everywhere over the floor, and they just lick all that up. As the, as the big fat dog pants for streams of water, right? So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? It's their enemy. You're going to see this, their adversary. These things, I love this. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How? He has a memory, right? He goes back in David. This is David uh, writing here. He's saying, how I would go to the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. He's, see, he's going back to this moment of God's nearness and of affection of love, right? He leads in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. A multitude-keeping festival then he speaks as, why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. He's my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you, God, from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Verse 10, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where, hey, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? 
And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Listen, in this moment, you have the circumstance in David's life of tension, of struggle, of hardship. He's overwhelmed. It's difficult. Life is struggling. His mind is in a moment of doubt. His mind is in a moment of offense. I want, listen, I want God. I feel distant from him. My adversaries, they're seemingly winning. They're making fun of me, saying, yeah, so God's with you with Goliath. Where is he now? Huh? You're all alone by yourself. Why are you? Where is he? Does he not really love you anymore? All the things you could think about, right? And he's saying, in this moment, they're mockingly saying, where's your God? David asked in verse 9, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy, right? He's struggling. He's overwhelmed. But Charles Spurgeon says this, David rebukes David out of the dumps. David comes in and rebukes David out of despair. David speaks into David and rebukes him out of doubt. In the he says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Don't you remember his character? Don't you remember his faithfulness? Don't you remember his affection? Don't you remember his goodness? David had such an intimate knowledge, an intimate and personal knowledge of God that when his adversaries are coming and saying, hey, God doesn't really love you. He's not really for you. David looks back and says, I hear that it's not a it's not an easy time. But why are you downcast? Don't you remember? Go ahead and lift yourself back up. Move, move towards faith, not unbelief, because God is character is for us. He's loving. He's kind. He's compassionate. He is just. The simple question is, do you know him? So that's what he's saying in the moment. Like, this is an unbelievably, listen, everyone, all these people are opposed to the David saying, but I know God and I know his character. Remember, conquering doubt, conquering doubt, moving from doubt to faith, conquering doubt requires a knowledge of God's character, a knowledge of his, of him intimately. A knowledge of his goodness and his faithfulness. Listen, to deal with our doubts, this is the last thing, to deal with our doubts, we must submit our hearts to God's revelation about Jesus and hold to it in spite of circumstances. Faith, doubt, and unbelief, heart in suspension, we will find ourselves there because of circumstances or because of theology or whatever it may be. But our intimate knowledge of God is required in those moments, right? Of his character. We must submit our hearts to how God has revealed Jesus. And in those moments, like David, we hold on to that. We hold on to his character. We hold on to the stories of his faithfulness. We tell the same story. We remember the movement of God. Because if that's who he was then, then it is who he is today, tomorrow, and forever. And again, in these moments, do you have that knowledge of Jesus to stand on? Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for this morning. And we thank you for what you're doing in Cy and Lane and what that you're expressing love for them and through them. We thank you that in their story, God, there's you hear their story, Lord, you know, it's, there's, there's so much tension this first year of struggle. But God, an awareness of your faithfulness. And so this morning, Jesus, we we lean into your faithfulness. We ask for revelation. We ask for awakening. We ask for awareness. God, we, we want to know you. Not just We don't want to know about you. Because God, that's, someone that, that's someone we're not in relationship with. We want to know you. So we can sit there and say, do you think that about Jesus? Well, I know him this way. And I can introduce you to him. Father, this morning I pray for each person who finds themselves in a place of doubt, a place of struggle, a place of unmet expectations, God, a place of theological tension, God, whatever it may be, I pray this morning that you would come and that you would speak into us. Father, we pray this in your name, Jesus, amen. This will invite you this morning to respond. We have ministry teams that will be available. Listen, I need you to be honest with yourself. I need you to be honest, like before the Lord. God, what's going on? Where are my struggles? Where are my doubts? Where's my tension? Where are my unmet expectations? Where's the, the hardship? God, what, where are these things? And I need healing. We want, you to, we want to pray for you. We're simply asking there to be this moment of honesty before the Lord. Of your tensions and your struggles, your doubts. And then just we're praying, God, awaken us to the full character of Jesus. Awaken us to the full character of of Jesus. This morning, God, to respond. We have ministry teams. Uh, for those of you this morning who came willing to give, this morning are ready to give. We have our offering baskets here. We have our communion table here. I was talking to my good friend Rick right here a couple weeks ago. He challenged me. Challenged